greatest tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi everyone, and welcome to Beer with BMSIS. This is the monthly podcast that features the research, ideas, and philosophies of the members of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. I'm Jacob Huck Misra, and if you'd like to learn more about our organization, you can check us out on the web at bmsis.org. So I'm joined here with uh, Professor Mark Clare, who's going to give us our talk for today. But first, I'm going to pass things on to uh, Betul Kassar, who is going to introduce us to a new beverage. Hi, everyone. Uh, I am talking to you guys from Istanbul, Turkey. And, um, well, as for the location goes, I thought it would be appropriate for me to introduce a Turkish beverage. And <clears throat> I'm going to introduce um, the most popular and kind of the only beer we have in Turkey. It is Efes Pilsen. It is E-F-E-S. Efes um, takes its name from Ephesus, the ancient Greek city in Ephesus, Turkey, in the Aegean coast. And um, again, you can find all kinds of Efes beers in Turkey. Efes Dark, Efes Extra, Efes Light, Efes Dark Brown. And um, it is one of the biggest breweries, not in only in Turkey, but also in Europe. And, of course, I got all this information from, from Wikipedia, but I know that it's one of the, again, b biggest um, beers in Russia, Kazakhstan, Moldova, Georgia, as Zach tells me, in Tajikistan, in Serbia, in Belarus, in all the Eastern Europe, European countries. So, FS has a tangy mouth, happy aroma, and it leaves that happy dry finish in your mouth after you drink it. I really like it, and it is it is easy to find this in in the United States. Just ask for it; <laughs> that easy. Especially if you go to a Turkish or in the Middle Eastern or Mediterranean restaurant, it will be very easy. And in the local um, um, uh, liquor places, man, I, I'm away from the states for three weeks, and I already forgot the name of places. But basically, just ask for it. You know, it will happen. Or ask me; I'll find you. Well, so I'm gonna open this bottle. I hope you guys hear it. And I'm going to drink it. Yeah. FS is good. All right. So now I'm going to move on to introducing our speaker for today. It's Mark Clare. Um, I asked Mark to send me an introduction for himself. And he sent me one of the most creative replies ever. There's so much about him and lots of unique stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and start with the most academic version. You know what? What is Mark doing? Mark is interested in understanding the biochemical evolution of Earth and how that can inform us about life elsewhere. He went to school at Evergreen State College, State College and then University of Washington. And he's now employed at the University of East Anglia, UK. And he's currently looking for students and postdocs, by the way. He installs hot tubs. He messengers bikes. He demonstrates planetoriums, he builds roads, and he tutors math. He's an assistant program officer at National Science Foundation and one of the co-founders of Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. He's been all around in the United States, from Seattle to Bethesda, from Olympia and Arlington, which I don't even know where these places are, most of them. And he listens to Minor Threat, that's Zeppelin, Massive Attack, 
American analog sets. He likes cats. And he wants to understand how he can implement his past into his future, which is my favorite. So, without further ado, Mark Clare for today's talk. Thanks a lot, Beitul. <clears throat> I'm actually not all that interesting right at the moment. Those are a collection of things I've done uh, over the, <laughs> the course, of, course of my life. But uh, thanks a lot for that. Um, okay, so uh, I am really excited to uh, talk to, uh, well... Right now I'm talking to my computer, but I'm also talking to a bunch of wonderful people today about some uh, ideas that I've had going for a little while. And I got I actually got a little stressed out about this about an hour or two ago when I realized that I didn't actually have a conclusion for the ideas that I want to talk to you guys about, uh, except some sort of like vague ones that, you know, you know, nature is pretty cool and we can attempt to model it with mathematics. And and then, though, I, I realized that that's actually probably one of the main reasons I got into science in the first place, was that particular realization. So uh, I'm going to do what I learned last week at the Goldschmidt Conference in Montreal. It seems to be the um, hip thing to do these days, which is give you my conclusions first. And those conclusions are that nature is really, really cool and amazing. And we have the ability that has come through co-evolving from nature to make abstract representations of the world through mathematics, which sometimes give us insight into this incredible natural phenomenon. And uh, I don't know, I just think that that's pretty much the coolest thing uh, around. So uh, I am going to try to... Uh, talk about those, uh, or, or at least live up to those conclusions by taking you uh, on a path uh, starting in the uh, Atacama Desert in Chile, uh, describing a phenomenon uh, that is seen there and in other uh, arid regions around the world called uh, patchiness, or uh, just sort of heterogeneous distribution of, of resources. Uh, wind uh, through... Uh, then some discussion of fractals and, and fractal analysis. Um, so I actually approached all this before I started. I want to. I approached all this a bit as a uh, similar to my general exam topic, uh, which I had uh, many years ago. The way we did the general exam in my PhD department was to we were given the title uh, of our talk by our advisor uh, a week beforehand. And it was supposed to be something that was uh, not something you had really thought about before. It was kind of on the edge of your research uh, area and knowledge. And the idea was then to give a, a full uh, hour-long talk to uh, the department a week later. So I decided, when I remembered that I was giving this a few days ago, uh, so I made up a title, and that was Fractals in the Desert. Uh, because what I really wanted to do was get into uh, what I know a lot of scientists have, which is the to-read folder. Um, I had some interesting papers on patchiness and fractals that I've been meaning to read for, for, for quite a while. So I, I came up with this, the idea for this talk is an attempt to uh, delve into some of this literature that I really wanted to uh, delve into for, for, for some time. The, uh, the danger in all of this, of course, is that my to-read folder has gotten much bigger. I added about 50 papers to it in the last day or two as I uh, started to, uh, to read through these one or two. Uh, but uh, that said, uh, a lot of these ideas come from uh, 
sort of two two main papers that I kept coming back to. Uh, one by uh, Reet Kirk et al. Uh, called Self-Organized Patchiness and Catastrophic Shifts in Ecosystems. Uh, and the other one that I found just today in uh, PLOS One, uh, Multifractal Spatial Patterns and Diversity in Ecological Secession. Okay, so I am going to uh, start off by taking you to the, uh, the Atacama Desert uh, in uh, Chile. Uh, it is a desert that's in the central valley uh, of Chile, which is between uh, a coastal range uh, right on the Pacific Ocean and the Andes. This region of the planet is one where, uh, well, for a number of reasons, it conspired to be the pretty much the driest place uh, on Earth. There's these uh, interesting ocean currents and global atmospheric circulation patterns that, you know, just sort of drop a very stable air mass uh, over the area. Uh, and in addition, you have this uh, topography that I just mentioned, where the Andes um, trap uh, all the water that flows in from the Atlantic side uh, of the continent. And, uh, you know, they're up to like 6,000 or, yeah, 6,000 meters, huge mountains. Uh, uh, and then the coastal range, which is right on the, the Pacific side, gets up to over three kilometers in height uh, between a, a few latitudes, uh, south 24 and 30, which are in the northern part of Chile. So in the regions where you have this stable air mass and these huge, um, essentially, uh, rain shadows, on both the east and west side, you get this narrow zone uh, that is uh, called the, the hyper-arid uh, zone in the desert. So the, the definition of hyper-arid is, is a formal one. It means that the uh, evaporation is more than 50 times the uh, precipitation rate. Uh, what it really means in, in principle is that it just doesn't rain there a year. The um, rainfall rates in the central hyper-arid core of the Atacama are... Um, uh, less than uh, one millimeter a year, which is, uh, if you take a look at the beverage that you may or may not be drinking right now, uh, and imagine uh, just one millimeter of that uh, at the bottom of your cup, uh, it's not a whole lot of rain that the, these areas see. Now, this is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. I have completely fallen in love with this very, very strange desert environment. And it's not something that I can, I necessarily can always convince other people of because it is an aesthetic uh, thing. But in this area, without rain uh, and without absence of all uh, certainly macroscopic life, you just get this amazing, to me, who's a, uh, someone who's a fan of wide open spaces, just loves the incredible peacefulness that that occurs there. There's a picture of the uh, Atacama in the uh, lower left of the PDF that is sent around if uh, people want to take uh, a look at this uh, landscape uh, a bit more. Um, so I was originally drawn to this desert as uh, from my interest in, in atmospheric chemistry and, and modeling uh, formation pathways of, of atmospheric species that uh, if, I, if I may interject with a question, where exactly in the Atacama is that taken? I realize once you narrow it down to 10 miles, there's no point in specifying further because it's all pretty much flat in that section, but I'm not narrowing it down to that level. Oh, so, uh, th this uh, particular region, this picture was taking, um, see if I can remember it. Oh, okay, actually, I do. I recognize that pit. Uh, I, I could give you the GPS coordinates. It is uh, 40 kilometers from the main road, which is uh, Interstate 5, uh, towards the town of uh, Iquique. 
So it's in the nor- one of the northernmost parts of the uh, uh, of the Atacama Desert before it uh, grades up into Bolivia and intersects with the Altiplano. Right. So the, the desert, for one reason, right, it, it sort of collects all these atmospheric salts because it doesn't rain, right? So the things that come out of the atmosphere, like nitrates, sulfates, perchlorate aerosols, uh, accumulate, aren't washed away. It's a really interesting recorder of, of past atmospheric conditions. Uh, and I went down there with originally with that in mind. I was driven to return there, though, by observations, uh, in particular at, at this site. Uh, we did, on the first trip, we were basically digging pits, uh, which you can see there. That's a pit that we dug in uh, 2010. Uh, this picture was taken in 2012, though, just uh, about a month ago. In uh, this site in particular, which, uh, where I believe, for, for other reasons, that it actually has not rained in, in possibly hundreds of years, um, I noticed, and you can actually see this a little bit if you want to, you know, zooming into the PDF uh, that I sent around and looking at that bottom, that there's this really interesting geochemical heterogeneity that you see uh, in the soils uh, there. Um, it's, it's a really, really interesting place. We, when we first out there in the field, we measured, you know, with the tools that we had, we looked at sort of uh, nitrate concentrations and, uh, with test strips and found it to be just incredibly different. Took some samples, uh, but went back with a uh, ability to sort of try to, try to look at this in a bit more detail. Um, it also, that uh, going back last time uh, drove me to read these papers that I was talking about because there are uh, observations in the scientific literature of patchiness, uh, uh, some quite, quite extensive stuff. So I, I read a little bit about it in the last couple of weeks and I'm happy to tell you about it. So for one, most of the patchiness that is discussed is uh, not observed in pure geochemistry. It's almost always discussed in the context of uh, life and, and macrobiology. Uh, so there's two pictures uh, also on this PDF. It's sort of on the, uh, on the right side uh, in the middle, which shows natural formations of patchiness uh, in various scales. The, uh, the one that's labeled C, you probably can't see it, but one of the more, you know, the difference here is that there's a difference in the scale. The one in C is grasses uh, growing in a desert. I believe that's uh, in Israel. And uh, the, the, the patterns you see there are at the 10-centimeter scale. They've been uh, interpreted and modeled being driven by changes in the subsurface flow uh, gradients of water due to the uh, relative evapotranspiration rate, right? Those little grasses actually are pull water up to the surface faster than the, the ground does. Uh, and it's actually the grass itself that is leading to the then now to water accumulation in a positive feedback network. Uh, the other one that you see there labeled B is on a scale of 10 meters. Those are bushes in uh, arid shrubland as well. Um, it's one of the African deserts there. Um, and you see distributions of uh, of these bushes growing in sort of on 10 meter type scales. And there it's interpreted as like, you know, sort of water filtration. You've got sort of hard pack soil crusts. And this is actually on a slope, which you can kind of see there. So when it actually does rain there, uh, the water sort of preferentially runs down the slope and falls into the areas where the plants are, right? It's easier for the water to infiltrate soil where there is roots and plant litter. Uh, in addition, there's also lower evaporation from those areas due to the shading of the plants uh, themselves uh, and form these incredible pattern systems. Right, so these pattern systems are seen throughout nature. In, in, well, those are just two, two particular uh, examples of it. 
uh, it's important that it occurs on on, on multiple scales. Um, and what's also interesting for uh, for a lot of at least in this this literature that I've read um, is that this patchiness a appears to disappear when it disappears it disappears catastrophically right if there's a if there's a gradient in the resource use or in the resource availability whatever that resource may be that's causing the patchiness uh it tends to uh fall away uh so that there's not really a transition between patchy distribution of these plants and just sort of a homogeneous uh state uh, so people have looked at this now as a, and there's a big literature on patchy indicators of a, of a catastrophic collapse uh, of an ecosystem. And I, I took the, uh, the picture that's sort of in the center of the PDF I sent around is from a, uh, a science paper on this matter, which moreover argues for a, a bi-stability uh, in the transition. So the axes there are the, uh, the vertical axis, the equilibrium density of ecosystem engineer, uh, right? That just means how much of whatever it is that's uh, creating the patchiness. Um, they, I like the term, term ecosystem engineer. That's one I've learned in the last few days, too. Uh, and then the, uh, the horizontal axis is the, the resource input. Right? So the idea is that as you, is there's, if, there is, uh, if you're on sort of the upper right portion of this graph here and you have lots of resource and lots of organisms, right, you wind up with a, a generally a heterogeneous non-patchy uh, distribution. Uh, but as then as you decrease resource, uh, whatever it may be, right, water or this can also, this doesn't have to all work for plants. That's one of the cool things, right? This can be, uh, this is even seen in like dune fields with wind uh, as the resource. Um, but as you decrease that resource, right, you generally tend to form these patch patterns uh, up until the place where you have a catastrophic collapse. And then the bi-stability bi ensures because if you increase that resource, again, you don't necessarily jump back into the patchy phase right so in the climate change community this is known as desertification right where semi-arid areas turn into arid areas uh you have you know essentially you, you this this patch you know goes away and all of a sudden you have an area which can no longer support uh, a crop or a um uh you know animals uh and no matter what do it doesn't seem to to just necessarily bounce right back right in the uh in these plants that we were looking at here you can imagine it too right there's sort of hard ground in between these things and once you know the ground totally firms up uh, and becomes impenetrable to roots forms a almost concrete like layer it's very difficult then for um, new seedlings uh, if there are any to to get started um so yeah there's all this idea then of, of looking at patchiness then as an indicator of catastrophic collapse is kind of cool, right? If you see this patch, that means that your ecosystem is in danger of, uh, of falling apart. Um, so I became interested, like, is it possible to understand this using mathematical models? Uh, and, and it is. There are these things called uh, reaction diffusion networks, where the uh, a resource, generally thought of as a, a scarce resource, is acted upon by a consumer, uh, something that uses that resource. Uh, and in addition to being, you know, having a consumer, it's also transported away generally by uh, either diffusion or, or, or invection. And this has actually been studied in general in many uh, fields uh, over the years, right? The, at, the, at the largest scale, the coupled advection diffusion equation, yeah, which is 
sort of ubiquitous in mathematics and physics. Uh, it's called the Navier-Stokes equation in fluid dynamics, fucker Planck, gas, uh, gas fluids, uh, even uh, Schrodinger's equation of uh, wave functions and quantum mechanics is a form of advection diffusion. Uh, interestingly, though, I found that the, the simple version of it is, the simpler version of it is, is relatively understudied compared to all those other cases. Uh, and that's when you couple just a diffusion problem with um, standard uh, Michelson-Menten kinetics equation for uh, a resource-limited reaction. Although there is certainly some, some stuff out there, uh, which I hope to look into more. Um, so, and, yeah, this, and these kinetical reactions work for both metabolisms. Uh, lots of resource-limited metabolisms can be described by, uh, by Michelson kinetics, uh, in addition to chemical systems. So um, these reaction diffusion mechanisms, where they've been studied, uh, lead to at least uh, a form of, of self-organization uh, when studied in computer systems, right? And by self-organization, you can roughly as complexity, right? You can make models that sort of look like the patterns you see in, in C and, and B there. So this self-organization, though, also, right, we can model a computer, it also it tends to appear in, in nature. We've hit on a couple of these before, right? There are these plant things, but also at the single level, uh, single organism level, it shows up. Uh, you can look at, um, like, if you look at leaf patterns in ferns uh, and cactus, Right, those show incredible repeating structure. Uh, from the point of view of, of a purely chemical process, the way it forms can be modeled and generated by a reaction diffusion process. Right, you've got both activation and inhibition of some chemical signature modulated by hormones in the form of leaf growth. Um, there are proteins that manipulate the concentration of a hormone called auxin, which uh, activates the, the growth around the meristem. Uh, and alongside with other hormones that, that control the relative angle of the bud growth around stems, you wind up getting um, self-organizing patterns uh, that uh, appear to reveal complexity. Uh, on a fundamental level, like embryonic growth is another example of, of self-organization modulated by reaction diffusion mechanisms, right? We, we all started from a single cell, and the genes that were in that cell had instructions for the complete uh, amazingness that is each and every one of you, um, and were uh, controlled by hormones diffusing along some concentration gradient, which told some cells to turn on specific genes or, or, or off. Um, patches and spots have actually been seen on uh, and discussed in uh, not in just uh, these living ecosystems, but in living organisms uh, like leopards and, and cheetahs, right? They have these crazy uh, pigmentations. Uh, also, the, the pigmentation patterns are determined by hormone growth. Uh, although there, there's also a, a natural selection effect. The, um, I mentioned that just because I wanted to uh, give a shout out to uh, Alan Turing, uh, who is known by many as the, the sort of former of modern computers that uh, eventually allowed us to all talk to each other on Skype, uh, but he created the first model of um, patch formation on leopards and cheetahs by looking at uh, reaction fusion uh, mechanisms of, uh, of pigments. Okay, so we've observed patchiness on many scales and many types of ecosystems. 
and describe how people like look at this spatial patterning that occurs in nature and sort of how it affects uh, through positive feedback the ecosystems and looked at it as an indicator for, for catastrophic change. We've looked a little bit into patchiness formation uh, and it can all sort of fit together by uh, a large-scale response to smaller scale changes in, in some process that's inherently local, right? You've got a, a resource that's limiting water uh, or wind, uh, in the case of a dune, you know, and there are, yeah, I brought up dunes there just because there are, there's certainly abiotic processes that this occurs into. Uh, lightning, frost crystals, ocean waves all show uh, some form of uh, patchiness and heterogeneous processes. So uh, all of this uh, stuff led me to uh, remember a fun part of my undergraduate days uh, where I took a module on um, non-Euclidean uh, geometry uh, in which we studied uh, fractals a little bit. So I'm going to take a bit of a turn here uh, to uh, the concept of fractals before tying it all together uh, in some terms. Uh, Fractals have been discussed, although not using that word, uh, since about the 1600s in, in mathematical theory. I'm going to jump into it today, though, by the most recent champion and actually inventor of the actual word fractal, um, Mandelbrot, who asked a sort of whimsical question of his mathematical colleagues uh, in a paper um, uh, only about 30 years ago, how long is the coast of Britain? And this is illustrated in the top uh, center panel of the, the PDF uh, I showed around. You know, they probably just told me, you know, go look it up on Wikipedia. or Well, I guess they didn't have it back then. But, uh, you know, go look it up. But he actually showed that, you know, if you use pure mathematical reasoning, the coast of Britain is formally infinite, uh, which is kind of a strange thing. Uh, but the argument he made there is sort of summarized by the fact that, right, you need a ruler, right? You need something to measure the coastline, uh, uh, you know. So if you start with a longer ruler, like we do in the left, uh, left center panel there, right, you get one length. Uh, if you then break down the ruler into smaller segments, you'll get a smaller length. And if you break down the ruler even further still, you can, start, you can definitely see that the area that is, um, or, or the, uh, if you, the, uh, uh, the circumference uh, is better, going to be better represented by the smaller ruler, the smallest ruler there on the left side, right? But you can, you know, you can sort of take this on ad infinitum, right? To get down to every single cove, right? Then eventually you're going to get down to, you know, the edge of a rock and, you know, eventually down to microbial scale of, you know, and, and even beyond uh, where you can keep subdividing your ruler and making a definition of, of, of a coastline. Uh, in, in that sense, right? We all know that it's not formally an infinite length, uh, but mathematically, uh, in the limit process, it can be considered as that. So he synthesized uh, what was uh, many, many years of, of science and research into fractals, uh, which all, uh, in particular, mathematicians had been interested in this concept of um, lines and space curves for, for many years, right? How do you if you draw a, a curve in a one, you know, a line on a, you know, essentially a two-dimensional plot you can think of, uh, you can define as a, as a one-dimensional object. But it had been shown that there are these, uh, per, in particular, um, lines that were continuous that completely filled a space, right? I can give you a formula to draw a line 
or at least a procedure to draw a line that will, you know, it's the equivalent of taking a pencil and scribbling over a, uh, a square region that will completely spill, fill the space, right? So it is a line, but it, you know, it makes it black. It doesn't seem any difference from just a drawn in square. Uh, and in doing so, then they sort of looked at the idea of how do you describe lines that don't fill uh, don't even fill up the entire space. So one on the left there is a point, famous one called the Koch curve. Uh, so what you do is you start off with that cool, now in the upper left, that cool little uh, four-piece long triangular pattern there. Uh, and then, or if you can imagine, just a straight line would be the first instance of it. Uh, and then you turn it into the four-patch line that's seen in the, uh, in the first image. Right. You then take each little, now there's four lines there, and uh, replace it into the additional uh, four lines uh, that, that you see. So in the limit of this, as you go down and go down, it sort of forms part of uh, what starts to look like a snowflake really quickly as you continue this iterative pattern. Uh, and form in the limit, right, the length between any two points on that curve is actually comes out to be infinite in the same uh, mathematical sense that the coast is formally infinite. Um, and one of the reasons why is that the length of the curve at each step along the way winds up being about f is four thirds as long as it was before, right? Because you've taken a three component piece and turned it into a four component piece. Uh, this generalizes down eventually, and I don't want to have uh, time to uh, go through it all the way. It gets a little boring, but you can d define a concept of fractal dimension. Uh, and in this case, the fractal dimension of that Koch curve up there on the upper left is formally uh, just that the function of the segments that was used to create it. It's the log of four divided by the log of three. Uh, the dimension of that curve is 1.269, right? So it's something more than a straight line, but something less than a complete square, right? It fills more of the space. You can maybe see this more um, clearly in the uh, curve that I've shown on the upper right side of the thing, the Sierpinski Triangle. Uh, and if you're bored at this point, you can, it's also one that you can just doodle uh, all to yourself, so I encourage you to start doodling if you like. Um, where the way you draw this one is you start with an equilateral triangle, uh, you mark off the midpoints of the lines of the equilateral triangle and draw uh, another, uh, you know, triangles between those midpoints. So what you've done is essentially created from one triangle You've created uh, three or well, four additional triangles with uh, half the area and half the height, right? And if you leave the middle one blank, at a white space, uh, what you've done there is essentially, yeah, taken you've taken uh, a space from one time, three times as long, to, or from well, two times as long to three times as long. Uh, so you wind up then uh, generating these what's called the Sierpinski triangle. Uh, with a fractal dimension log 3 divided by log 2 of 1.58. Okay, so there, there are ways that you can actually formally, at least in these mathematical representations, represent sort of the fractal dimensionality of a, of a two-dimensional distribution, right, that can tell you something about uh, the particular way that patterns are developed in space. Uh, and... You can actually use modern techniques, to, right? You don't need to go to the micron level. At some point, there's a limit that is reached, right? When If you start using continuously a lower and lower ruler, you don't get very much change. In that limit, that goes to the actual fractal dimension. You can actually answer 
Melbourne's question, and it's been shown, at least by estimate, estimated practices, that the brittle British coastline has a fractal dimension of 1.25. So it's actually slightly less of a fractal dimensionality than the curve on the upper left there. Uh, Norway actually has a fractal dimension of 1.57. So it's between the Koch curve and the Sierpinski curve. Um, and this can be generalized to uh, multiple and higher dimensions. There are volume-filling shapes. Uh, and a lot of these are done by living things. Cauliflower, uh, I just learned today, has a fractal dimension of 2.33. Because if you look at it in detail, each branch of a cauliflower carries around 13 branches that are three times smaller than our cells. Uh, the last one I'll share with you are our lungs, which have a fractal dimensionality of 2.97, which is pretty amazing uh, if you think about it, this volume structure that still allows for the uh, penetration of, uh, of air. Okay, so uh, one more for the doodlers uh, and for anyone who's bored out there. Uh, if, if you want to have a good time, you can take a look up uh, on Wikipedia the uh, list of fractals by Hausdorff dimension. And you get to a pretty pretty fun page uh, that, that shows a lot of these things. Um, okay, so now I'm going to try to tie together these uh, ideas um, loosely. There is a field of science called fractal analysis, uh, where you measure the fractal dimension uh, of your data uh, or of an image and use it as a method of, of classifying, the, uh, classifying the underlying distributions. This in no way is a new field, and none of the ideas I've put forth today are new ideas. The only thing that they are new to is me, uh, and therefore they are exciting to me because I just thought of them. But people have been thinking about this for, for uh, some time. Uh, one that's really cool that actually ties together both of these ideas of patchiness and reaction diffusion networks with fractal dimensions goes back to the lungs, right? So the, our fractal dimension of 2.97, people have done time series uh, uh, MRI images on the lungs of asthmatics and modeled the asthmatic uh, bronchial uh, breakdown as a catchiness phenomenon uh, described by local these both local and remote interactions between patchiness forming and local airway collapse, uh, which then leads to poor lung ventilation. Of global oxygen starvation and muscle contractions on the large scale, which can then amplify local airway collapse. There's a lots of numerical work on patchiness formation. Uh, there's some uh, on the fractal dimensionality of patchiness. Most of those linkages that I found are in the macro communities, um, like the sort of uh, distribution of the pictures that you see uh, along the side there. Uh, I've only found one really good one working in microbial communities, which I'm interested in. Uh, and that was a 2012 paper on PLOS One, where they grew communities in a petri dish uh, subject to various nutrient limitations and did um, multifractal analysis of both community growth patterns uh, and the community structure that, that, uh, that developed. So, in general, there is, I think I've described that there's a self organized patchiness, the observant phenomenon of such is indicative of some sort of resource-limited ecosystem uh, and appears to be, uh, at least in some cases, bistable, right, where the current state depends on, on the past state. And one of the ways of, sort of defining fractals, I didn't mention it earlier, but is, is sensitive dependence to, to initial conditions. So uh, my idea to tie this all together is I'm going to start looking for fractal 
geochemical patterns uh, that occur in the absence of life. All right, so I'm going to go, I've gone to this hyperarid core that you see there in the, in the lower left image, uh, where there is actually quantifiably no living organisms uh, in the surface. Well, that's, we can talk about that, but it's close. I am going to, and actually I already have, if you look at the lower right, taken crazy sampling grids designed to allow me to calculate the fractal dimensionality uh, of uh, both geochemical processes and uh, hopefully, uh, eventually we'll couple them with molecular estimations of, of microbial community. I have no idea where any of this is going to lead. Um, I'm, it's possible that it might lead to insight in microbial community collapse, right, in the same way that we're, we've talked about plant community collapse. You know, one question I've heard people ask in astrobiology circles is, is there any equivalent of a microbial mass extinction? Um, well, certainly the Atacama, there is a very sharp region from which there appears to be the almost standard uh, arid uh, cell counts of 10 to the 6, 10 to the 5 cells per gram, which is not very much uh, per mil, yeah, per, uh, to nearly completely dead. Other insight, I you know, if I dream about it, I can imagine, you know, taking just something like the if you superimpose that grid on top of the desert there, that uh, repeated spatial measurements of a resource uh, or resource utilizer, right? Whether this is a uh, an intensive state variable or not, um, and then quantifying the fractal dimensionality could lead to a quantification of the available resource, whether it's uh, rainfall rates uh, in the desert, or hopefully, possibly, uh, the existence of life uh, in a patch of soil. I hypothesize that there's going to be a different fractal dimensionality as I take my transect across the transition zone. You know, then the, the biggest mad pipe dream is of a, a future uh, Phoenix lander type mission, you know, or, uh, or maybe even a cosmonaut. Send Jacob up there, uh, going up to make those hundreds of measurements on a square meter of Mars, uh, and uh, maybe using that to, to learn a bit more uh, about the surface. So I have no idea where any of that will lead, or if there's even anything fundamental in there. Um, but uh, it's something I uh, have I find fascinating. And uh, yeah, as, as Bechtel said in the beginning, if you happen to know of, uh, uh, or if you, or if uh, you happen to know of a student who's doing a PhD. Um, or is interested in doing a PhD or, or a postdoc in something weird like this, uh, I'd love to talk more uh, about it with you. So uh, with that, I'll, uh, I'll stop and hear your thoughts on my madness. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. That was great. Um, so we have a little bit of time for questions, if anyone's got a question for Mark or a point for discussion. If I can make a comment, you talked a bit about the fractal properties of coastlines. There's a related effect, which is you're talking about measuring the, the dimension of a landscape in the ocean. This whole area study where people measure the fractal dimensions of lakes. This is different. You get different fractal dimensions depending on the relative abundance or relative importance, rather, of different ways of eroding the coastline. And this is applied to Titan as well as to the Earth quite successfully. The guy who's been doing a lot of this work is Alex Hayes over at Cornell. I had another observation, which is that you talk about looking for inorganic fractal options. So the coastline, of course, is relatively inorganic, at least on Titan. But also snowflakes seem to me like they have a fractal structure. But I'm trying to remember if it's formally fractal or not, or if it's just very crystal structure like that are, can't actually have fractal dimension or not. I mean, it's not immediately obvious that it's self-similar at all scales. Yeah, I mean, 
any physical object is not, I mean, a fractal is pretty much truly a mathematical construct, right? I mean, you know, even in the idea of Kali, right? I mean, it breaks down, the self-similarity breaks down when you get to the level of certainly uh, anywhere uh, towards the uh, atomic level, right? It's, it's all gone in there. Um, but yeah, if you look at, so you can look at crystals and at things like snowflakes uh, as far as they go uh, before they sort of lose their, their, uh, their structure, do have that self-similar nature, right? So yeah, it's, it's an approximate fractal dimension that you get for things like coastlines uh, or lakes or broccoli. Did, did, that, did that get to your point? It's related. I was, was trying to remember because all these sorts of things, you get changes in the fractal dimension as you get to different scales and the physics that, that you are dealing with changes. So you coastline of Britain actually has different dimensions on different scales. Obviously, you get into small scales, the water's constantly sloshing around and what you call the coastline. Oh, uh, yeah. Certainly, in a, in a generally, so the when people do the at least the, the papers that I was looking at, what people were doing these, um, uh, you can actually do multifractal analysis where you look at the, um, yeah, the, the distribution of these this fractal dimension or some proxy for it, uh, either as a as a change in time or a change in spatial pattern, and do do interesting analysis uh, on those. Generally, though, most people because that just becomes computationally difficult, and you run into yeah. The idea of yeah, of course, the every time the ocean wave comes, which is a fractal in itself, or it has fractal structure rather, sorry, in itself, um, it will change the, the definition of that cosine. People tend to look at static, static, uh, multiple static images to to try to do it. But no, it's certainly. I'm actually yeah. And thanks a lot for the the idea on on lakes. Like I said, this, none of this is new. People, it's new to me, uh, and in that sense, it's exciting. I and yes, I my. Now my uh, to-read paper folder has gotten a few extras in it because I'm going to read all about uh, lakes on Titan here at some point. Hey, Mark, I actually have a, a, a different type of question. Have you thought at all about the fractal patchiness in relation to maybe civilization scale patterns? I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of the Earth, as night pic Earth at night picture, which shows you know, bright lights in certain areas where there's big cities and then big swaths of dark area where there's you know, even land or jungles on Earth. Um, people have described this as like persistence is a word where there's sites on Earth that are persistently visited and others are persistently unvisited. I mean, is there any tie-in with fractals with that? I, I think there. I think there might be. I've actually seen uh, one of the ones that I starred, but then I only re I only read the abstract, so I certainly can't talk to it in any great detail. Was a um, uh, a multi-fractal analysis of housing prices in a community structure and sort of the idea here is that you know I mean, you can kind of see it right in, in a you know if there's a if you've got a house on a crappy street and somebody fixes it up quite well and sells it for a lot more there tends to be a clustering then of, of, of housing prices and that can sort of grow into topological networks and uh, yes yeah, so there was a paper that I looked at at least in, in that level looking at the um, and showed that there was an interesting fractal dimensionality to housing prices that they were then able to look at multiple cities and show a similar dimensionality to the change even though there was differing topography different population sizes uh, and, and that sort of stuff but again that, that that's just from an abstract but yeah there there. I think there are, I mean, there's certainly a lot of ways I think, to, to, to tie these uh, issues together. I was really amazed at all the papers that I found. Well, we probably have time for one last question or comment, if anyone has one for Mark. 
All right. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. That was very fascinating. Uh, I think we all enjoyed that. Um, so, listeners, uh, tune in next month for the next installment of uh, Beer with BMSIS. Until then, take care. Thank you, Mark. See you, everyone. Bye. Silence replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. <laughs>